Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is the podcast shout out for our Halloween episode. And while we're not going with a horror movie podcast or anything, we're going with a podcast that I've really found rather entertaining as of late. It's called Your Favorite Band Sucks. And basically, they tackle a specific band like, let's say, oh, I don't know. Uh, Slayer, they did Sublime, they've done Madonna, and, and they just dress them down and just tell people how badly they suck. And it's really, really cool. Their, their Sublime episode is the best because, quite frankly, I can't stand Sublime. So, <laughs> Bo, you don't practice Santeria. No, I do not practice Santeria. So anyway, check them out on Apple Podcasts. Check them out wherever else you get your podcasts. And find them on Twitter and on whatever social media you can find. Instagram, Facebook, you know. And anyway, with that out of the way, on with the show. I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Robert Ortegon. I'm Ashley Chancellor. I'm Dakota Chancellor. This is Collateral Cinema. Welcome to Collateral Cinema, the only movie podcast that matters, where we focus on good movies, bad movies, and everything else in between in the world of cinema. We are podcasting straight from San Antonio, Texas, and yes, my friends, we are a 420-friendly podcast, so whatever you have, be it bongs, be it blunts, be it anything marijuana-related, smoke it if you've got it. Folks, today is our Halloween episode... Bo, Robert, what are you guys doing for Halloween? Oh, probably going to be drinking a lot, watching horror movies. Yep, probably a Halloween marathon happening somewhere. Yeah, yeah, dude. Bro, just come over to my house. We'll watch a bunch of horror movies. Watch the Cult of the Thorn or something. Hell yeah, just the the entire Cult trilogy, the entire Thorn trilogy. Fuck it. Yeah. And maybe we'll also watch like Mandy or something. I don't know. More Halloween related stuff. Halloween related. Well, we should totally watch Antichrist. Antichrist. <laughs> it's it's my it's my daughter's first Halloween. So I mean, we're we're kind of trying to figure out what we're gonna do. I mean, this weekend we're gonna do some Halloween related stuff. Are, but uh, now are, are you going to dress her up as a pumpkin? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Oh, I think no. we're I think we're gonna be a little bit more original than that. Oh. I don't know. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> and and Dakota, what are you doing? Oh yeah, that's right. Dakota isn't here because he has a oh, video game yeah, addiction. <laughs> I'm, I'm right here, guys. Hey, I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm a good boy. Funny I'm story. Dakota, I'm a buddy. Dakota's here. He lives here at this house, okay? He's here, and his friend Brandon's here, too. He just decided not to watch the movie and not to be on the show, so... Wah, wah, wah. We're gonna have to have an intervention. Yep. Yeah, we're gonna have to have a talk. Long, we're gonna have to talk with his apex addiction. And yep. I don't know. Maybe we'll record it and we'll put it out as a special episode, and it'll be funny. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get Michael Cornwell in on it. He he will. Damn, he's just gonna clown the shit. Out of he'll he'll clown the <laughs> shit out of Dakota. <laughs> 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 he would. Well, guys, for this very special Halloween special. 
we're going to be talking about uh, what is widely regarded as the greatest and most influential of all horror and thriller films. And what is that, guys? The it, Shining, right? Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. The Stanley Shining. Kubrick's The Shining, originally, you know, uh, written by Stephen King, the novel. Yeah, but of course, uh, what what Stanley Kubrick ended up filming was a little far removed from what the novel was. It is, it is, and we're very, gonna we're gonna talk similar. about that first off, though. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Stanley Kubrick. I mean, as a as a director, as a producer, Bo, you know, like uh, as far as his filmography goes. He has directed some of the greatest works of the 20th century, honestly. 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm. A Clockwork Orange. I mean, this movie. He did Paths of Glory. He did Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah, and he did the moon landing too, right? Allegedly. No, just kidding. No, no, we actually went to the moon, guys. There's, there's no denying it. No, yeah, we went to the moon. <laughs> yeah, R- R- Russia would have been all over that if if we didn't. Yeah, honestly, it would have cost more to fake the moon landing. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. So yeah, Stanley Kubrick, he's a he's a busy guy. He, wa- he was a busy guy. He he passed away many years ago. Right. Unfortunately. Now he's the director, producer, and writer for this, and also uh, co-writer Diane Johnson. Do you know anything about her work? Not a whole lot. Uh, Robert, do you know much about her? No. Honestly, no, one, once again, there's the collateral cinema lack of research. Yes. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. Well, lucky for you guys, I have Wikipedia pulled up here. Uh, iPhone. Okay. So, I mean, she's done... Actually, she's written a lot of novels, so... Oh, wow. She's an actual author. Yeah, like an actual author. And I guess she also writes screenplays, so... Whoa. Oh. Nope. Nice. Go. Nothing else to say other than that. Working writer. Hell yeah. Now, did, did Stephen King at any point have any involvement in the screenplay? Like, as, as far as I know, he didn't. But I mean, obviously, he did write the novel, yeah. And, and the novel is one of his is one of his more famous novels, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it's, even especially because of this movie. And, and from what I understand, it's just as batshit crazy as most of his other original, like m- more well known works. You know, like like it. Yeah, which we just yeah. covered in, in yeah. chapter two in our uh, hmm. uh, our preseason episode, our preseason our preseason episode, bonus yeah. episode. Check check it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's actually it was a, at the movies episode. We give our thoughts on it, and uh, if you haven't checked that out, check that out. So, The Shining actually has quite a bit of a cultural impact, um, both the novel and the film. Like I said before, it's it's widely regarded to be a great horror film, possibly you know the it, greatest and most influential. And it, it's possibly it's up there as some of the most greatest works of cinema in film history. Honestly, yeah, thanks yeah, to. So, Warner Brothers, right? Hell yeah. Hell yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, Warner Brothers giving Stanley Kubrick free reign over this, which, of oh, course, yeah. di- didn't really go over well with Stephen King. No, yeah, famously, Stephen King actually doesn't like the movie. He still doesn't. Like, I, I, mm. I, I think that his overall opinion really hasn't changed that much, Yeah, mm. honestly. And, and, and I think, especially among book readers, I think this movie's going to be controversial for the ways in which it deviates, because I know that there are cer- certain things, like certain ways that uh, the characters and themes are portrayed differ quite a bit. But if anything, you know, if you learn from like It, for instance, It Chapter 2, you know, was a little bit less praised than its predecessor. That may be because it did stay more faithful to the novel. So I'm going to say that 
you know, in some cases, you know, especially a Stephen King novel with the, you know, the coke fueled, <laughs> yeah, all the all the coke fueled nonsense, it it gets a little bit much, you know. Yeah, you know, I think some some of that does just doesn't translate well on screen, and that's okay. That's why we have different mediums. You know, we have different media like video games that are better for telling certain stories. We have movies that are good, and we have books that are good for telling. So in some cases, you know, where, where Stanley Kubrick made some changes to this film to make it translate better to cinema, you know, there may actually be a good argument for that. And Well, yeah, it, it is inherently one of the most cinematic movies you're bound to find in the horror genre or in cinema, period. I mean, yeah. it's up there with, like, Tarkovsky's Stalker, with, uh, shit, uh, like, some of Hitchcock's work, you know, like, fucking Vertigo, oh, yeah. you know? It's up there with stuff like that. And this, once again, coming from a director that has made some legendary fucking movies. Yeah. In fact, this movie, The Shining, is another movie that's been selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Long Library of Congress, being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I mean, that was something we mentioned in our Princess Bride episode. Oh, yeah. And also in Bullet, I remember. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I, th- I think Eraserhead might be uh, in there as well. Yes. I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure it is. It could possibly, yeah. It's gotta so, be. If it's not, it should be. I mean, yeah, this this movie, I mean, even if even if it does deviate quite a bit um, from the book, it, it really stands on its own. And I think Stanley, Stanley Kubrick has managed to craft his own version of the story that's just as recognizable and, and uh, equally as uh, relevant, you know, to, to pop culture. And, and I think that's important sometimes. So I know, for instance, certain characters like, you know, the main character, Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, you know, is portrayed a little bit more sinister in the movie from the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, you pretty much kind of get the idea that this dude is a massive fucking dick, (laughs) like pretty much from the get go. Yeah. I mean, even, even from the moment that you see him do the interview. You know, yeah. he's he's immediately just kind of sitting there with kind of this puckish, you know, what can you do for me attitude already. Yeah. You know, it it comes across as a little off putting and you know, I mean when you get into some of the symbolism in that particular scene, you know, especially with a lot of the red, white, and blue motifs, yeah. it's like I mean, I guess you can say it's some kind of critique of America, maybe. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about the casting later. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, that's one thing is that Jack Torrance was portrayed quite a bit differently in that, you know, instead of being an initially likable character, he's sinister throughout. Um, We also see uh, one famous change that may not seem like it makes a big difference, but the room number was changed from 217 to 237. Hmm. Interesting. And, and that's actually well known because you said there's a documentary called Room 237. Oh, yeah. By the way, don't watch that shit, ladies and gentlemen. It's a bunch of it's a bunch of conspiratorial nonsense. They yeah, they, they actually try to say that it's linked to the moon landing conspiracy theory. And that's just like, no, guys. <laughs> yeah, you, you can find way better analysis on this movie on YouTube. Like I watched a lot of stuff by Rob Egger, like uh, from uh, what is anti-logic? I mean, they have some uh, a good theory about the movie where there is no ghost. We'll, we'll probably get into actual theories about the movie here a little that later, would, right? That would be pretty cool. Yeah. But, yeah, the actual reasoning for changing the numbering actually has to do with the, the hotel that was shot, uh, Timberline that, Lodge. That, that's right. They had a room 217. Right. And they, didn't, they thought that people might be afraid to sleep there. Um, so they changed it to a non-existent room, 237. What's funny is that 
217 is requested more often than any other room because of this movie. And didn't they eventually just change it to 237 just for the fame factor? I don't I kinda know about re- that. I kind of remember reading something about that. Yeah. I mean, some other differences, too, is the, the motivation of the ghosts, the idea of Jack being a reincarnation of a previous caretaker. That was kind of an, a last-minute addition. Well, that's, that's assuming that those are ghosts we're talking about. Right, Once right. again, we'll get into that here a little later. Yeah, how much of it is supernatural versus psychological is definitely like something that was in my mind during the film. Danny Torrance in the novel supposedly, I haven't read it, but in the novel he supposedly, Danny is a lot more, is, is more intelligent and he's more open about his psychic abilities. Um, Wendy apparently is a more strong, independent character. Yeah, I mean, she came across as a little frail and a little, like, you know, completely nerves shattered and everything, but there's a good reason for that. It's because of the way that Stanley Kubrick specifically directed her. Like, he, he harangued her and her fucking harassed her and just made her break down, you know? Like, I mean, that, that, that was pretty much her exasperation with the direction that Kubrick was giving her. And she really hasn't recovered from it really yeah she has had some rough times recently and it's very sad actually and a lot of it kind of goes back to her doing that role like i mean there's some actresses that they can do a role like that that they could bounce back from like let's say like isabella johnny she did uh, her role in possession i mean mm-hmm. that was that's a crazy movie and her fucking performance in that is was so exhausting that she had to take seven years off just to recover from it but Damn. eventually she, she bounced back from it or or i mean if you look at performances like say monica bellucci like what she did in something like irreversible where i mean she endured pretty much an uninterrupted nine minute rape scene i mean a lot of those actresses, they can go through some serious shit and bounce back from it. But for some reason, like Shelley Duvall, she didn't even go through half of that shit. And you know, Stanley Cooper kind of broke her. Really? Yeah. yeah. It, speaking of which, the, the way in which Stanley Kubrick, the direction in which he took the film, you know, is really interesting. I mean, I was, I was you know, like looking at like the cinematography and, and for instance, you know, like the camera work. What do you think about that, Robert? Oh, very David Lynchy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like how it think? kind of like follows the characters. Oh yeah, when he's like on the big wheel and the screeching noise, like what what is it again? Dang. Yeah, which gets even more confusing because the way that the set is designed is meant to have a bunch of weird spatial anomalies throughout. Yeah, like I if, that. Like if you actually look at the layout, like whenever Danny is actually riding on his big wheel, mm. some of it doesn't make sense. It's like all of a sudden he's from the he's going from the Colorado room, he's going to the hallway where the gold room is at, he's going into the kitchen randomly. It's it's almost like the space of the hotel is just constantly shifting. And mm. apparently a lot of that is actually documented in the blueprints for the set that's at the Stanley Kubrick archive. Wow, that is cool. Like, yeah, he he specifically set it up that way. Like, even with the labyrinth, like he 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 would like they only had like a small section of the labyrinth actually built for all the scenes in there. Like, they didn't Mm. use the entire thing. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of nineteen seventy. Well, man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. He came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his wife. 
his family with an axe. You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not gonna happen with me. rearrange the goddamn labyrinth like <laughs> overnight on his uh, crew and everything and he would on purpose uh, change up the map not not actually he wouldn't change the map to fit those changes so his actors and his crew would get or lost legitimately just, lost they would get legitimately lost and they would say that they would hear kubrick just laughing <laughs> whenever they were coming calling out stanley stanley it's, he, he would just laugh from outside the damn set that is hilarious it's like what an asshole <laughs> god damn he, he did that specifically to kind of have this weird kind of shifting quality to the environment yeah and, and like you said you can even see it in, in like some of the performances like shelly duvall you know yeah she's so out of it right robert i mean what what do you think about her performance damn. the way he just broke her down into that character you know like i don't know yeah i mean she, she goes from kind of like sweet, the sweetest sniper the nicest person like ever like like i'll make you a sandwich and stuff like. and then she's just completely done broken. by the end as soon as broken by the as end soon as he saw the sun just like what he did to him like yeah she she was just broken and what's amazing is a lot of the sound design and a lot of the music kind of accentuates uh, her performance a little bit that's what i was thinking is that you know i really like how the soundtrack is completely tense throughout the movie yeah, he actually took a lot of that from David Lynch's Eraserhead because that that's a movie where yeah. there's constant, you know, droning, there's constant humming and buzzing. It's always going on in the background. There's never quiet in that movie. It's very prevalent all the yeah. time. Even these seemingly like mundane situations are terrifying. Yeah. Because just because of the way I noticed that early on just because of the way that the, the soundtrack is lifting the moment. And you know, as far as the cinematography goes, I mean, for a film in the eighties, I mean, this this was well. If if you notice, like especially Robert would agree with me here, Robert, there was a lot of shots from a distance that still kind of kept people centered and everything. It was either that, or there's usually shots really up close uh, to each of the actors, right? Uh, or mirrors image scenes, like yeah, reflecting back. 
I mean, for a 1980 film, this just this feels every bit as engaging and terrifying as a film today. And I mean that because, you know, with a lot of modern cinematography, we, we've we figured out ways to set up shots. And, and yet, I mean, this movie, I think, is kind of ahead of its time. It really was, man. And, and it pretty much established the term Kubrickian as a type of directorial style, you know. But I like how plain the text of the film is laid out. It looks like it literally was made in like Windows Movie Maker. I, I know, right? Mm-hmm. Like especially in the, in the scrolling credits in the beginning. But I feel like that was that was an intentional design choice. Yeah. And, and the text that pops up that separates each scene and, and the time gaps, you know. Well, I, I think the most important thing about that is that it's so sparse and it's so spaced out like even in that first in those first few moments in the intro like when you hear that first boom 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 yeah you don't see any text you don't see any logos you don't see anything you just see that expansive shock that's angled that goes over that island you know and then it's continuously moving over the mountain range and everything and it's it's pretty much following a VW bug following a VW bug going down the road. And then eventually it just goes straight into the interview. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really thought the intro really captivated yeah. me and the way you have those, those shots. And then like, like you said, the way that the script is set up and, and the lead into each scene and, and the moving back and forth between the interview and Wendy and Danny in the beginning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Robert as our resident, aspiring filmmaker no i wouldn't say that yet. i mean what what do you what do you <laughs> <laughs> oh come on now you we Aspi- have aspiring we, filmmaker robert we have a little something something coming up yeah we got some we, projects we'll, i heard i heard yeah. killing we'll, night is is completely. done it's complete as far as uh, yeah, shooting goes. filming wise we wrapped it up like a few days ago yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk a little more about that closer to the end of the show we'll kind of go into a little more details but but, but yeah aspiring filmmaker nah, go, nah, go you guys. what do you what do you think about the the cinematography robert it's a lot more david lynchy more than more than anything really. yeah but but it still like, has that kubrickian quality to it you know there's yeah. always that you know like i said he knows how to set up space shots he and he knows how to do close-ups well it's crazy it's like i'm looking at the same thing almost like a, yeah like a what do you call it deja vu scene yeah. over and over just repeating and, itself like and, oh, and that that's probably intentional because yeah. you know they specifically mentioned deja vu except it's more than deja vu right yeah it's way more than deja vu it's more like reincarnation that's what's kind of uh, implied there it, you know i was really confused about that i wasn't sure when i saw that at the end i was like because they mentioned like you've always been the caretaker you know and then and then at the end they show him in the photograph in like 1921 and i I was just really confused about that. I, well, I was yeah. figuring out, trying to figure out what was being implied. Well, what they're going into is that the caretaker as a character himself uh, is someone who's pretty much eternally doomed to constantly come to the Overlook Hotel, go insane, and kill his fucking family. Yeah. Basically, it's a Nietzschean kind of thing. You know, it's but, called the thought of the eternal recurrence. But then basically basically this this caretaker character is pretty much doomed to completely repeat this path over and over again. It's not so much reincarnation, it's just a repeat of the same fate. Oh, that's deep. Yeah. Well, wouldn't you say that 
the cycle's pretty much broken with Wendy and Danny actually escaping. Yeah, it's definitely broken. And, and that's another one of the recurring themes or is cycles of violence. That's almost like Amityville Horror or something. Like yeah. The fatal murders. Like yeah. That, and that, that's another movie where uh, actual cycles of violence kind of come into play. It's supposed to be recurring. Like yeah. That's really that's really deep. As far as I know, that was actually kind of an addition to the film that wasn't originally in the novel. If I'm not mistaken, what was the idea of the reincarnation or... or you know that that cyclical nature of the caretaker so i mean that's definitely somewhere where stanley kubrick took the direction of the film or or, or reinforced yeah yeah that way so i mean you know in other words you know outside of of the plot which was already you know obviously already written i mean this film shines <laughs> in a lot of ways you know what i mean um just just with the the way that the the directing is set up so i mean and going into that now you know we can talk specifically about the plot too. I mean, I already mentioned, you know, like the disjunctive time gaps, but what I like is how in the beginning of the film, you know, the, the, the time gaps are more sparse and then slowly they end up, they get closer and closer and closer together. Did you notice that? I, I think what I noticed more is how there is more of a parallel between Jack's story and Danny's story. And that kind of goes to a central theory that's come out from the fan community and from the YouTube community is that, Jack Torrance himself has The Shining. Yeah, it's possible. Which, which actually yeah. makes makes a lot more sense when you think about what he sees in the Gold Room. When you think about it, it's like that. Those, that that's why, honestly, there there's this theory that was that I saw on YouTube. I think it was by Anti Logic. Uh, it's by What Is Anti Logic. That's the channel. And he put forth that there weren't actually ghosts there. That you know, and it goes back to what Halloran said to Danny. You know that it's not so much things that are real they're just kind of like pictures you know they're representations of what has happened before like ghost ship dude crazy yeah exactly you know watching the movie i actually wasn't sure i really wasn't sure what was supernatural versus what was psychological you know because a lot of it seems to be just jack torrance's you know imagination and, and that's kind of the way it comes off to me now obviously we do have psychic ability so there is some kind of supernatural component here we know that danny has some kind of you know psychic ability he yeah. knows things and even well, jack is is made aware of events that he shouldn't have access to yeah exactly so i mean there obviously is some supernatural work at play here but how much of it you know like you said i really didn't get the feeling that it was ghosts at all it seemed to mostly be some manifestation, I think, of these characters' psychic states. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of goes into a theory that I really kind of grasp upon, which honestly makes a whole lot of sense, which is the idea that the whole movie is about Jack Torrance brutally sexually assaulting his son. That's what happened when he was all traumatized and everything and coming back from Room 237. And Room 237 is supposed to be kind of representative of that actual assault. And, and, and the dream that Jack Torrance has, which, I mean, let's face it, it is more or less a dream or hallucination. You don't actually ever see him go into Room 237. That that's basically a representation of the assault that happened. Oh, so it's kind of like he looks at this thing and it seems like it's like it's something that he wants because he sees this this beautiful woman that's like s seductive and stuff and then yeah. suddenly he notices after embracing her that she's this this ugly you know like almost like like maybe like leper you know this, you know yeah, yeah. Old, this old lady and she's got like wow well, yeah, what seems to be some kind of leprosy or something so maybe that's like guilt 
manifesting. Yeah. You know, there, there's something in front of him that at the time when he first goes into it, it is kind of this seductive quality, something that he thinks he wants. Then after he already embraces it, he feels guilty about yeah. it and it seems ugly. Well, another thing is that all of that is related to that one very brief scene is very, very infamous where there's a dude in a what seems like a bear costume giving fellatio to a man in a room randomly. That's what Wendy sees when she's freaking out and running through the yeah. house. I mean, supposedly that's kind of Danny shining his projections and kind of giving her hints as to what's happening. Yeah, yeah I, was, I didn't what know what the happened. fuck was going on. At that point, I was just like, yeah. what? And, and that's what that is supposed to symbolize right there. It's like that's another manifestation of that assault. Wow, that that is really deep. So I don't even think you know. I, I literally just watched this for the yeah. first time just now. Yeah, I mean, by by the way, that's all Rob Aker's work. I just want to cite him real quick. Yeah, I mean, cite your sources. Don't want to plagiarize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> straight up, Robert Rob Aker, you did he did it awesome. His thing was collective thinking or something like that. What's he, he did some good work on this. What's interesting is that you know there's just kind of an overall lack of a reliable observer throughout the entire film. You yeah, can't trust anybody's observation. Not Jack's. Not Danny's. Not even Wendy's. You can't even really trust the what's going on in the camera itself in a cinematographic angle. Right, because, because of the way that it was set up. And, and also, if you look closely, I mean, there's there's ways that the backgrounds change in other ways. Like for instance, there's furniture that's there in one scene, and then it's not there like directly in the next scene. Or the way the the pairs of the two twins are to show up. Yeah, everywhere. yeah. There's a little all bit of for, there's a little bit of foreshadowing to, towards the twin girls. Okay, the, the, no, check, check this out. This foreshadowing is when you see them actually coming into the Overlook Hotel the first time when everybody's uh -huh. leaving. It's closing day. You you see in the background, there's almost always a duo of women that's walking out with luggage and everything. Oh. It's, kind, it's kind of a little bit of a foreshadowing allusion to. Uh, the actual girls that were killed. Always in a pair. Yeah, All, yeah they're always in a pair. They always say, later Sullivan, or whatever his name is, it's like, I mean, it's always just a pair of of women. Wow. I didn't, I, I didn't notice that. I mean, that, that was one thing that kind of bugged me, though, is that they said that the girls were 8 and 10, yeah. but they were twins. Yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Right. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe, he, maybe he meant to say they were 8 or 10? Maybe. Yeah. That's a possibility. I mean, th those girls definitely are, are, are identical twins. But anyway, yeah, like like I said, there's an overall lack of a, of, of a you know reliable observer throughout the entire plot. And and really, in that way, you know, like you said, the cinematography and and the plot kind of intertwine in a lot of ways. They do, yeah. And and that's saying a lot because I mean, it, you know, I had I had kind of our itinerary set up to where we talk about you know like the cinematography and directing and then the plot. But these things are completely intertwined throughout the film. Do you know how I knew your name was Doc? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I can remember when I was a little boy. My grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it shiny. And for a long time, I thought it was just the two of us that had the shine to us. Just like you probably thought you was the only one. But there are other folks, though mostly they don't know it or don't believe it. 
How long have you been able to do it? Why don't you want to talk about it? I'm not supposed to. Who said you ain't supposed to? Tony. You know, with the plot, sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly what is going on and what story is being told. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's very interesting how everything kind of unfurls, and a lot of it has to do with Danny and his powers. Because, yeah. I mean, a lot of that that is happening, that's just his powers manifesting themselves, and he's just kind of finally coping with the powers that he has. Right, and Tony is implied, and, and this is a little bit more subtle in the film, but I, I heard that this is explored more in the novel, is that Tony is actually just a manifestation of Danny's psychic abilities. Well, it's also, going back to the sexual assault theory, it's also kind of seen as representative of what his dad actually did to him. It's like a coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism, yeah. That's exactly what it is. And th- that's just in that particular theory. Right, right. And I think in the novel, it's revealed that his middle name is Anthony. So Tony is very much yeah. a part of Danny, yeah. but kind of a, a separate personality. One that, you know, he actually is is legitimately aware of as a separate character. Yeah, he even calls Wendy uh, Miss Torrance. He calls her Mrs. Torrance. And yeah. I think at one Mrs. point Torrance. refers us to Torrance. refers to her by, by first name. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and, and that was really interesting. And then there's that whole part in the end where he says Danny's gone. And I mean, does Danny ever come back? He does, yeah. I'm, I feel I'm, like he does. I'm thinking that in the end he's he t- Tony pretty much lets him go in so that he can pretty much kind of run away and survive. I think so because he, he does seem more more Danny at a certain point, but we don't really hear him talk again. So you know, yeah, yeah, th- that's going to be really interesting to see in the sequel. You know, Doctor Sleep, which we'll 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 mention in a minute here towards the end here. Yeah, but. that 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 honestly, some of the readings that I got off of YouTube on this movie, it's going to make that movie Doctor Sleep's really fucking interesting. Mm. It's going to be interesting to see if any of the writers for that movie actually kind of integrated any of those theories into the, the script. You know, it'll, it'll be very interesting. Kind of like The Thing or something. Redoing yeah. that, remaking that. Yeah. Adding yeah. A, a prequel to it or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing I, I did notice, too, was that there there's a lot of ambiguities in the plot. Lots I mean, of them. I mean, the one that sticks out the most, of course, is the end. And kind of being like, well, what what is that about? Like, what, what are they trying to imply here? But even throughout the whole movie, because, you know, like I said, sometimes we don't know exactly, you know, is is this ghosts is this just all in their heads what's going on it's a ghost ship dude (laughs) i mean obviously there has to be like i said some kind of a supernatural component because there are certain things that the character should information that the character should not have access to otherwise yeah well well that's because the shining powers in and of themselves it's, it's not just a singular power it's a set of powers it's telekinesis it's telepathy it's the ability to you know listen in on other people from Ex- another like room extra cognition yeah, extra cognition like yeah, he, he's, he does precognition as well precogs yeah he's he's precognitive like if you see in that bathroom scene like before they go to the overlook hotel where he's brushing his teeth and he's talking to tony it's like he already knows that jack got the job he's like he's gonna call wendy here in a few minutes it's yeah. like like he already knows the finger robert's doing the, the finger the, puppet. robert's doing the finger like 
Like, this is Tony. Danny's not here right now. <laughs> Danny's not here right now. Please leave him as please. <laughs> so, like we said before, Kubrick made a lot of modifications to the to the story. And in some ways, you know, well, what do you guys think? Do you think that these modifications, you know, from, from the original story, do you think they add or, or detract to to the effect of, of, of the of the writing i think that it adds to the overall cinematic effect of the movie that otherwise if like if you look at the shining miniseries which is a more faithful adaptation there's a reason why that went made for tv i mean there's a reason for it because i mean it's just so ridiculous that mm. it could only work in that fucking format yeah, a lot of it, you know, like I said, there are some things that really only fit in a book, and when you try to translate it to screen, it doesn't come across as well. So I think in some ways, you know, that's represented a lot more symbolically in the movie yeah. to kind of carry over some of that. And I think in some ways, there are some some new themes that are explored. And and for instance, you know, like, like you said, some theories that come out of this movie that may not have have even, you know, stemmed from the book or, or, or really been implicated. Yeah. Well, I mean, another thing that another theme that kind of comes out from that cinematic element that we're talking about is history, which if you look on the walls throughout pretty much any given scene, you're bound to find at least a few pictures, if not an entire row of pictures of the hotel's history. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, and that's always something that's kind of looming over the characters, like all the time. It, that history, that uh, everything that's kind of accumulated there, it's just looming over them. Well, and Danny's shining, and if you accept that Jack Torrance has shining, it's like that just amplifies it and just m makes that history manifest itself. Yeah. And it kind of contributes into the actual abuse itself. It kind of contributes to it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. It, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's an oppressive, antagonistic tone from the get go. That that's what the Overlook Hotel is. It's it's oppressive history. So rowing, rowing twenties parties that just keeps repeating itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we mentioned before, one change too is that you know Jack from the beginning is portrayed as a less sympathetic character, and one a character who from the beginning is kind of implicated with. Uh, physical abuse and, and that's interesting too because one other element that changes is uh or supposedly you know is that you know in, in the novel over time over time as he kind of gives into the madness jack uh is able to kind of uh, let go of his writer's block and he's able to write better in the movie that's completely changed up all up until you know late in the film especially you know at, at the confrontation where you know the climax finally surfaces and, and you know wendy confronts jack and, and this all kind of goes to shit you know yeah. you have the all work and no play makes jack a dull boy you know and that's just written over and over and over and over again mm -hmm. like he never got over that writer's block in the movie mm -hmm. no he didn't it's kind of interesting if you actually pause some of the frames in that scene when she's looking at that you you can see some of the typos that are in there yeah i noticed that and it, inconsistencies that it was written yeah. in different writing styles sometimes you know there's there's paragraph blocks sometimes it's just straight up lines sometimes it's indented and well i saw another theory on the anti-logic video on this which showed that there was a word that kind of came up a lot more than often in that and that's the word adult like all work no play makes jack adult boy adult. and wow. basically adult. The, the theory is is that 
everything that's happening in the movie is basically because Jack is, does not want the responsibilities of being a father. He doesn't want the responsibilities of being a, being, husband. <laughs> being a husband or a caretaker. He being doesn't married. want he doesn't want the responsibilities of an adult. He, he wants to he wants to have all the perks of adulthood, but you know, with all the freedoms of childhood, of of being in your youth and everything. And this starts to just manifest itself into this cancer that just starts growing within him. And it also kind of relates to how him and Danny's story are kind of you know parallel. Oh, you can tell by every day when he was waking up with those mood swings, dude. Just like yeah, every day he's just a different person. Like. So how how ironic is it then? Yeah, you know that that he gets the position of caretaker. Yeah, when, when in the end, Wendy is the one that does all the work. Yeah, that's true. I saw I saw yeah. she was doing all the repairs. At that point, Jack is just writing. Yeah, she's doing his job, and he and even most of the time he's not writing. No, you know, he's, he's writing. playing. Yeah. Like there's that scene where he's throwing that ball on onto the wall of and the he, in the Colorado lounge. He doesn't and write. He just he doesn't writes write. that one line. And then there's that yeah. one scene where he starts walking into the lobby and all of Danny's toys are kind of laid out there, you know? Oh it basically yeah. kind of undercuts how he wants to revert back to the freedom and innocence of childhood and he's just not reacting well to that. So I mean, you know, you could then say that it's probably implied that Jack himself suffered some kind of an abuse in childhood. That's possible. I mean, that's usually the, you know, that's usually where these kind of situations stem from. Yeah. It is this cycle again uh, uh, of abuse and the way that, you know, if you're abused as a child, you may end up doing that to your own child one day. Yeah. It's the systematic cycle that never ends. um, Except, you know, maybe in this, this film kind of does break the cycle. I mean, I guess we'll see what happens, you know, in Dr. Sleep with, with, with Danny. Well, it's already indicated from early plot synopses that's been released is that Danny does become an alcoholic, much like his dad. And alcoholism is definitely kind of an undercurrent in that whole thing as well. I mean, he wants to drink. I like how he gives into his alcoholism without actually drinking. Yeah, that's what's crazy. But it, remember, it's pretty much the manifestations of the hotel's history that's giving him that liquor. Yeah, and... And he does. I mean, in a sense, you know, you can see he does get drunk. Yeah. I, I love that whole scene where he's talking about the bartender and they're just saying like every like white man slogan that they're <laughs> yeah, <laughs> women can't live with them. Can't live without him. You know, white man's burden. The white man's burden. <laughs> yes. Which is in the novel, by the way. It's in the novel. That's that, great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that whole scene was just was just really funny. I love how I love how all the characters that Jack possibly hallucinates kind of cater to him. And that's kind of why I have that feeling. That's kind of why, why I feel that, you know, a lot of them are psychological manifestations because they do kind of seem to cater to him. And they're kind of foreshadowed kind of earlier on in the movie. Like a lot of the things that each member of this family see, that's it, kind of alluded to earlier. Like, for instance, Danny Torrance, he references the fact that he doesn't have anyone to play with well when he first encounters a hallucination that directly talks to him what are they it's the two little girls saying come play with us forever and ever yeah the dead girls and like you know wendy whenever she's in the gold room whenever they're first coming into the hotel she's like this would be a great place for a party (laughs) well later on when she's uh trying to escape the overlook hotel and jack and everything what does she see? She sees that butler that says, like, great party, isn't it? Yeah. What that, a wonderful party. And, it's you know, really interesting. 
Yeah. I'm trying to remember which one pertains to Jack. I, I think what it is, it's the alcoholism and yeah. his desire to drink and what happens in the gold room. The first thing I think he sees is the gold room is, is the, yeah. the bartender. Basically, he, he does not want to be sober. Mm-mm. Yeah. And you can tell. And speaking of which, I mean, going going into Jack's Jack Luke. Torrance's character in the casting, you know, like uh, by J- with Jack Nicholson, you know, obviously known as well as the Joker. Yeah, and you you still got that sinister and manic quality, but slowly, you know, it spirals even further into insanity throughout the plot. Yeah, I would like to think that maybe this role is what got Jack Nicholson the role of the Joker because that and Wolf. Remember that dude? Oh, Wolf was great, man. Famously, you know. Uh, Stephen King actually was opposed to the casting of Jack Nicholson because of his sinister presence. It's, it's the eyebrows, yeah, no. yeah. But that's exactly what Kubrick wanted. That's what Kubrick wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, instead of making this uh, a likable character that slowly transforms into insanity and you know redeems himself at the end, like in the novel, this is a character who's from the the beginning. I mean, and through the end, gets what's coming to him, and he yeah. just kind of descends into what was kind of already set out for him. What he, I think, he wanted, and and he has, like you said, a sinister presence throughout the film. Well, there, there, there's also the fact that the movie is essentially a really fucked up story about domestic violence. Yeah, you know, it's like that plays into that as well. I like how much of the plot, and you can tell a film is really good when you keep talking about it afterwards and you're yeah. analyzing and reading, reading into things that weren't explicitly laid out for you. I mean, that's really, really interesting to kind of even try to figure out what is implicitly contained within the narrative. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? What, what, how much of this is intended? How much of these theories are actually in line? A movie that, that's able to do that, you know, that's true cinema to me. Yeah, I mean, it elicits theories that actually make you think, and some theories where you're just like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you but, know? I mean, yeah, going back to Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance, you know, um, one one other thing, too, is I, I think, I believe some of the performance was ad-libbed or improvised, right? Like the he- the famous, you know, memetic, here's Johnny line. Yeah, that was an ad-lib, I uh, think. You know, that, yeah. was, that was improvised, which, and, and it's really just out of nowhere it's like what (laughs) but it just undercut it just undercuts the absolute panic of that scene yeah it does because i mean that's what that is that is total panic i mean he is just busting down that door and what's really scary about that is how real that is it's Mm -hmm. like it's a solid door yeah i mean that shit happens
domestic violence happens, man. Yeah. Shit like that happens. Breaking down doors and shit. You and, know, and it happens. Breaking down Wendy Torrance, you know, played by yeah. Shelley Duvall. Like you said, I mean, she is a very meek character, especially apparently as compared to the book. Um, but one thing I noticed, and I think this is why Kubrick went in this direction, is that, you know, she does kind of gain her own strength and independence in her own way. And, yeah. and I think it's really interesting to see a character who's weak and, and being broken down, you know, like like the, those, those doors survive and struggle her way out. I think that that's actually really uplifting in a way. Because of her son, really. Yeah. Because of her son. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is really uh, uplifting to, you know, maybe victims of domestic violence is people who don't feel very strong and yet they can feel empowered. So, you know, something that may seem like it's depowering to women by, by portraying this character as meeker than she was in the book, actually in a way kind of empowers victims of, of uh, domestic violence. Yeah, I can definitely see that. But I mean, one thing to keep in perspective right there is that typically most women will go back to their abusers many times before they finally leave. That's just kind of a statistic mm. thing, you know, yeah. it, it, it's a very complicated issue. And, even this movie doesn't completely go into every angle of that, but it definitely provides a starkly realistic and timeless depiction of this type of horror. Yeah, definitely. And I like how, you know, in the beginning, the way it's portrayed and it's very realistic is she makes excuses. I mean, the way that she tries to like justify and tell the doctor, you know, yeah, the situation in which Jack dislocated his son's arm, you know, and, and, and that's really interesting too, because you can tell like she's trying to kind of justify it in her own mind. And that was the red flag right from the start. And throughout the whole film, she caters to him. She does what he wants. I mean, the, the, the first scene where I really kind of felt like, okay, this guy's a dick, you know, is when he starts yelling at her and she just abides by it or whatever. But there's a certain turning point in the movie where after she's scared by him, you can tell she, she's, she's ready to let go and she's, she's trying to leave. And for her, there is no going back now, obviously. Oh, no. So especially given the actual fate of Jack Torrance. Right, right. right. So, but. and what's really interesting is seeing her, Wendy and, and Danny, you know, leave off screen and they're not seen again. You know, right after that is pretty much when you, when you, it just suddenly cuts to Jack dead and, and, and that's it. And that's really interesting. I think from a certain perspective that really adds to the themes in the movie, you know, that they, they just kind of leave and we don't know what's going, but they survived and they left it's a cliffhanger, dude. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that, <laughs> that, that's that's what makes this upcoming sequel so interesting. It's like, what exactly? Where exactly are they going to go with it? Yeah, where do they go next? I'm really yeah. interested to see that. That was one thing I wanted to mention too, as far as the plot goes, is how like abrupt those time gaps are. You know, you'll be midway through a scene, and then suddenly it cuts. You know, Tuesday. Yeah, one month later. I really like that. But going forward with the casting and the characters, I mean, we also have Scatman Crothers, uh, Dick Halloran. Scatman Carruthers. He's a really likable character. I mean, possibly maybe a little bit underutilized and may, that may be due to time constraints. I feel like he probably was a more prominent character in the book yeah. as a mentor character to Danny. Because he's the one where that really lays forth the actual ground rules of how the shining yeah. works as a set of powers. The crux yeah. of the movie. Yeah, it's he's the crux of the movie very much. And in that scene, you see so much foreshadowing, even when he's talking to Danny about The Shining. There's a scene where Danny has a row of knives above him, yeah. which kind of undercuts you know, what's to come. At first, I almost didn't trust the character, but over time, I, I was able to see like he's a very genuinely likable character. I really actually was kind of saddened whenever he just kind of unceremoniously dies. 
Yeah. They, they seem to be laying the groundwork for him to kind of be the rescuer. And in a way, he is the tool through which they're able to get the snow cat to leave. Yeah. And, but I believe in the novel, he actually survives in the end. But in the movie, he's just killed and that's it. I thought he was going to come back somehow from that. <laughs> no, he, he wasn't. No, that, that's a straight axe murder. <laughs> but that fucking guy in Slumber Party Massacre, he, he kept coming back. Yeah, I know. It's like how many times was he stabbed and fucking yeah, attacked and no, shit? No, that actually that was, pissed me off. That was just the first one, right? Yeah, just Damn. the first one. Like, but yeah, seriously. I, I like how, you know, at the moment that Danny and, and him both kind of go into this catatonic state and at the same time, and there's this link and he knows and he can't tell other characters this, but he rushes straight to the hotel. And I like how, how the movie switches back and forth between those perspectives yeah, it, and gives you a little bit of hope. Which, by the way, entails him straight up flying from Miami to goddamn Denver, Colorado. Yeah. In the middle of a fucking snowstorm. But and driving me, five uh, hours. Driving five hours. Let me get this straight. He works at the hotel for most of the year and then goes home during the offseason to Miami. Hey, that's a pretty common thing in the hospitality yeah, industry. The winter just set in and just the motel was covered in ice already. Yeah. Power lines were down. Nobody's going to stay there. Yeah. yeah. No, no, nobody's going to stay through that. They're I mean, pretty much waiting out the winter in that motel room. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, he was a really interesting character. And, and then, of course, Danny Lloyd's Danny Torrance. Did you guys notice that Jack Torrance plays Jack? Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance and Danny Lloyd plays Danny Torrance. Interesting, right? That's funny. That is interesting. It's kind of like that uh, 90s sitcom thing that they do where they <laughs> oh, yeah. just, the just change the last name or, or workaholics. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he kind of fits the archetype of that character, the kid who's unnaturally smart and gifted. Although I, I, th- yeah. I hear that that's explored more in the novel and, and in the movie, you know, he is kind of nerfed a little bit into a more ordinary, uh, relatable character. And then, and then of course he, his psychic abilities that are, I, I guess the focus of the film, the shining. So, you know, and I feel like with his performance and, and with the rest of the characters, I mean, they deliver a lot of strong performances and a lot of that for me, you know, makes me wonder how much of it is the writing and how much of it is the acting. I think it's a combination of the performances and the actual direction. I and, think I think it's a combination, and, right? And you, you have to remember, Stanley Kubrick, he co-wrote the screenplay and everything. So a lot of this is very much deliberate as per his desires for the movie. Mostly you know. facial expression to old school. Yeah, yeah, very much, you know, facial expressions, you know, how the comp- the compositing of the shots, mm-hmm. you know, like like what colors are used like like for instance how the color red is used yeah. it's used kind of not so much to signify danger which i mean it does come up there but to kind of symbolize jack and his desire to be free of responsibility oh like in the bathroom scene yeah the the caretaker who's not the caretaker oh yeah exactly he, he's yeah that entire bathroom is completely awash in red that both represents Jack as a character and it also represents the bloodshed that has continuously happened with this complete recurrence of the caretaker's deeds. Yeah. You yeah. Know? The Mr. Grady character. Yeah. Well, I mean, the caretaker period is a character to me. Right. Like to me, that that's what I think. I don't think that the Overlook Hotel is so much as antagonist as the role of the caretaker himself is a fucking antagonist. Like, this shit is meant to happen. So anybody can be the caretaker. Yeah, any, yeah anybody can be the caretaker. I mean, th- think about how so many of the shots that show Jack Nicholson, like, in relation to mirrors, mm. it kind of shows how his, his true self in many ways, right? Yeah. 
It, it kind of shows, you know, where he's going. Yeah. Like like in, in that scene in the bathroom where with Grady, it doesn't look like he's looking at Grady. It looks like he's looking at the mirror. He's looking at himself the whole time. That's really yeah. interesting. Oh, I like the mirror shots too. The, yeah. the the red rum and how he writes that intentionally so that when she looks in the mirror, it's backwards. It says murder. Yeah. Murder. Or or go, going back going back a little ways into the movie, like whenever whenever Wendy wakes Jack up and gives him breakfast in bed, the first thing you don't see him in bed, you, like straight up, you see him through the mirror. I noticed you see, that you see a mirror representation of him. I noticed that and I thought about that. I was about to mention that actually was that whole scene that that's in the mirror and then you see her interact with him through the mirror. That that is yeah. really cool actually the and, way they did that. And in the fatherly love scene, which is which if you go by the sexual assault theory, it's like this is what kind of precipitates that. Yeah. It's like there's a specific angle where you see Jack Nicholson from the back but you see his full representation in the mirror like and he's very kind of decrepit looking and just completely fucked wow that's that's really deep yeah i mean that that's what that's what's happening right there it's like that's the true jack that you're seeing in those mirror composites i know i I have to i'll have to rewatch the movie and look at some of this background stuff because that's really really cool that's what's great about this movie it's an infinitely rewatchable movie (laughs) and you will find new things in Probably every, every time. Every like, time you watch like a it. Bear in every scene. Every right? time you. Yeah, th- there's a bear in every scene, and that kind of uh, ties into the uh, filleting bear scene. Yep, you know, that, that all. That all, which also ties into the sexual assault theory. Dressing up in fuzzies and filleting. You know, that yeah. almost makes the movie like. Well, it does. It makes the movie like retroactively more terrifying to me. Is, that, is that weird? It makes it more disturbing to me. More disturbing, oh, yeah. right? Because because yeah. if you if you take into account some of Danny's uh, dialogue, like especially when he's talking. to to the doctor and when he's talking to Scatman, it it does kind of feel like somebody who's in a position of authority trying to get to the bottom of what's going on with Danny, you know? The disturbing quality, you know, that, that's also present in like Gummo, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. It kind of has that little undercurrent to it. So yeah, I mean, yeah, this movie has a, a lot of undercurrents and explores a lot of themes. And, and sometimes it's it's you know difficult to tell how much of it is intended, how much of it is, is fan theory, but that really, yeah. I think that really adds to the the cultural impact and, and the pop cultural phenomenon that this is, you know, the the memes and the quotes and the references. And then, of course, you know, we've got other projects. I think, you, you know, you were mentioning Room 237. Yeah, and that, that's basically a pseudo-analysis of The Shining. Like, there's maybe one or two theories there that kind of run in academic circles. Like, for instance, the Native American genocide theory, which, I mean, you, you can find plenty of that on YouTube, but they, they go into moon landing conspiracy shit, which, like, like we said earlier, which, to me, just kind of discredits everything and like, like robert brought up the indian burial ground it was built yeah. on an yeah an indian burial ground yeah, that, so i can kind of see where that and there's in. lots of native american imagery throughout that makes know? a lot of sense there's, all native the, all Ameri- the artists, right? there's all native of american imagery in the studio guys oh all there is yes Th- thanks to our friend dave courtesy of dave we need dave on the podcast dave Come to the podcast, Dave. I wish I could say Dave if you're listening to this, but Dave doesn't have internet. I don't no, think. Th- he, I don't think he has any way to listen to this podcast at Damn. all. We'll have to download it and like give it to him somehow. Yeah, Maybe give him like an iPod or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> give him an iPod or, or fuck it, let's just burn a few episodes <laughs> to a CD. There you go. I think he'll appreciate that. And then, of course, you know we've referenced it several times the upcoming sequel, Doctor Sleep, which apparently 
is both going to be an adaptation of the novel and a sequel to this movie existing in the same cinematic universe. So that's going to be really interesting the way they reconcile those. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, I'm really looking forward to see what the writers do with many of the theories that came up with The Shining, especially with Danny. And, and starring Ewan McGregor. Oh, yeah, that's really cool. He's like, kind of up and coming finally now. I mean, uh, he's after he's, not seeing him since since Star Wars, he's kind of coming back. He was in that Christopher Robin movie. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. He's going to be in this. It uh, looks like they are going to be moving forward with the, uh, the TV series with him as Obi-Wan, which nice. is perfect because that's I great. Mean, let's be real. Ewan McGregor. I don't know if we're go- I know we're going on a tangent here, but Ewan McGregor you know, really does capture the mannerisms of Alec Guinness perfectly in Star Wars. He, he does. I was looking at yeah. like a comparison and, and it's crazy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, he, he played a great Obi-Wan, actually. Uh, he, he was one of the even the people who hate the prequels, you know, kind of see him as as one of the more redeemable aspects. Of course, I like it all, but you know. yeah, R- Robert, what's your take on you and McGregor, man? Like what, what's your take of his career and like how he acts and everything? Hmm. I forgot which actor that was. Obi-Wan, young Obi-Wan. Oh, in uh, The Phantom Menace, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and in the whole prequels trilogy. Wasn't he also into Purge? I get him mixed up with that other actor from The Shack, the guy who did uh, uh, The Terminator Salvation. Oh. <laughs> I always get him mixed up with that guy. Oh, shit. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, Christian Bale? No, that other dude. He was like another T-800 or whatever. The oh, shit. Like a cyborg Terminator with a heart, remember? Fuck, that dude. Guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get him mixed God. up a lot with that guy. That's weird. that is mm-hmm. that's weird damn it <laughs> but yeah i mean the shining definitely uh, manifests itself in our pop culture i mean like i said there's there's so many memes the here's johnny quote and and, and the memes that, that reference that um and then of course you know we did mention the mini series that is uh, apparently more faithful to the novel, but also not as well received as this movie is. So, I mean, if that's telling, it's still kind of worth it to watch it. Kind of like it's worth it to watch the uh, It miniseries before you watch the both chapters of the It movies. Yeah, you know? I definitely feel like I was able to to uh, better appreciate It Chapter Two after watching the miniseries yeah. in between after watching the Chapter One. So. I think it is good to see different takes on the work. And Stephen King, you know, for being as wild of a writer as he is, I mean, I really like to see the different ways that different directors and writers take his stories. So I guess I'll I'll definitely want to look into that, is looking at the the miniseries. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, I mean, The Shining, I mean, it's one of those movies that even the movie itself has embedded itself in the culture beyond, you know, like the novel. You know what I mean? Even beyond its own genre. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, what are your final thoughts on The Shining, Robert? The Shining. I still, no matter how many times, I still, I think I'm always missing something, trying to still understand something or I'm not getting it, you know? It's like every time I put it on. Yeah, every time, right? Yeah, yeah there's always just another layer to pull off yeah. there. I've yeah. seen it the one time and I saw it just now, but. Yeah, you. this is the first time you've actually seen this movie, huh? <clears throat> it is. And I and literally, I just watched it right before recording. Honestly, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of jealous of that, man. Because <laughs> I, I remember the first time that I watched the movie, it was back in maybe the early 2000s when, you know, when there was still like Hollywood video and everything. Yeah. And my buddy and I, we went on a little horror kick. Like we were watching like Evil Dead, Dead Alive, fucking American Werewolf in London, Friday the 13th, all that shit. And we got to The Shining and we watched that on VHS in my in my brother's room on, on, a, sh- on a little shitty TV. <laughs> and it was still so mesmerizing. It was still such a frightening movie in so many ways. Yeah, I definitely need to rewatch it now. Like, I already feel like I need to rewatch it just to notice everything. Yeah, dude, if you love cinema, I mean, you will watch this movie a lot. Like, I've seen this movie countless times since then. Yeah, I would watch this one back to back with Cuckoo's Nest, you know? Yeah. With and that was like 1979. Oh, definitely. Too. Yeah. I would actually watch this probably alongside another Kubrick movie, like, I would even watch this alongside Dr. Strangelove, which is a movie that we'll have to do on the podcast eventually because, I mean, it's also kind of relevant as far as global politics is concerned. I mean, it's, it's, it's a satire, very much so. But I will go ahead and give my final thoughts on The Shining. I mean, I think that it's a movie that is quite possibly one of the most academically analyzed movies Mm-hmm. and also analyzed by just armchair critics in general. And it, it's hard not to see why. I mean, yeah. everything that we've gone into here, I mean, the, the various theories, you know, the actual way that the sets were designed, the way the music was utilized, the actual performances that Kubrick got out of Duvall and Nicholson. And Nicholson. I mean, it's also infinitely fascinating. And that, I mean... Last night was the first time I've actually watched the movie in a couple of years, and especially knowing some of the newer theories that I've heard, I mean, it made it more disturbing. It made it more poignant. It made it even more cinematically, structurally sound, Mm -hmm. you know? And it really just, Kubrick at his finest. Yeah, I'll believe it. It's Kubrick at his absolute finest, and he had such an impactful career. I mean, Barry Lyndon, Eyes Wide Shut, I mean, Dr. Strangelove, like I said, I mean, he's done even work going back into like the 50s and 60s, like with the killers. And he also did Spartacus. But I mean, this is a director that we will definitely get into a lot more in the future. I mean, I would love to do A Clockwork Orange, which is seen as a highly disturbing movie and a classic of disturbing cinema. Actually, was Takashi Miike disturbing, or <laughs> it's it's almost there. It's its own kind of disturbing. Is that Malcolm McDowell, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah, Malcolm yeah. McDowell. Yeah, yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's that's a pretty profoundly fucked up movie. Yeah, it is. Its own right. Yeah, this movie is in its own right. Singing in oh, the rain. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> as far as uh, my final thoughts go, um, you know, like I said, this was my first time watching this movie. I 
definitely feel like this movie needs more rewatches to fully grasp. And and I definitely feel like I need to analyze this a little bit more. But man, there's just so much to think about. I mean, a real true cinematic work, you know, like I said before, is one that's going to leave you, you know, thinking late later, you know, what was really going on? What was implicit to the plot? You know, and and also just a movie that leaves you thinking, you know, mind boggling for for hours afterwards. And this movie delivers on that. Man, I can't wait to show you some of the other things in my uh, collection that are similar to that. Just wait till you check out Come and See, man. That's another movie that has some profound impact. Come and see on your mom. <laughs> oh, wow. You're making jokes like that. And this movie, that movie is very much about Soviet partisans in World War II. <laughs> it's, it's namely child soldiers in World War II. So, wow. yeah. A soldier boy. Yeah, and, y- and, yes, and, yes, and yes, there are Nazis, and from what I heard, it's coming to the Criterion Collection. Oh, hell yeah. Woo! So, fuck yeah. I, I happen to have a bootleg of that movie, and I'm going to show it to y'all. y'all. Y'all need to see it. It's something that is very impactful. I'll believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's almost impactful in the same way that The Shining or something Kubrickian would be. So, Bo, what is coming up with Collateral Cinema Season 2? Season 3, I'm sorry. Season 3, yeah. Well, next up, we are going into our first indie episode of the season, and we're excited to announce... I think we announced this a few episodes ago, but screw it, I'm going to announce it again. We're excited to announce that the First Glance Film Festival approached us, and they have allowed many of the filmmakers that are selections in that festival send their work to us for reviewing and everything. So what we're going to do is we're going to do at least three to four movies per episode. We're going to do a couple more throughout the season. And we, we have yet to really decide which, which ones of these movies that we're actually going to review first. I mean, I, th- I have a general idea. Maybe we might do first come, first serve. But it's going to be very interesting. We have some awesome filmmakers that sent us some short films and even a documentary that is a little challenging, a little different from some of the stuff that we've done before. Definitely so, want to challenge ourselves. I mean, yeah. And, and, and to everybody to everybody who has selections in the First Glance Film Festival, keep them coming. And if, if you are just an independent movie filmmaker who may not have a selection in one of these film festivals, you, you can even feel free to go ahead and send us your work. It's like, we'll definitely check it out. And our next numbered episode, our it's next official episode in the season. We've referenced it we've many refer- times. Many we, times. We've built it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that right, Robert? You oh, know yeah. exactly what we're talking about, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We are talking about a little Christian movie <laughs> that was reviewed by the Cinema Snob, which oh. is one of our favorite reviews of his. My favorite. Yeah. All time. All time. It's the fucking buttercream gang. The fucking buttercream this, gang. This movie is another <laughs> it's another so good it's bad masterpiece. I mean it was gonna be either this or Neil Breen and, and we decided to go ahead and go with Buttercream Gang for, for this season. We're we're definitely gonna get to Neil Breen eventually. Yeah, yeah. I for mean sure. we may even find a way to squeeze him into this season somehow. We'll see what happens, but yeah, I'm excited because the buttercream gang is just it, it's just an it's just a work all of its own. It's it's a masterpiece of 
<laughs> of Wonder Breadness. Wonder Bread, white, whitey, whiteness from white, Mir- white Whip. from Whitestan with a crust cut diagonal. <laughs> yeah, it seriously, people, it's the whitest thing you'll ever see. So, so white, even Trump would fucking have something to say about it. <laughs> like, this is just too white. It's too white. I can't. I can't deal with it. Well, well Trump's not really a white person anyway. He's orange. <laughs> <laughs> Simpsons, That's right. He's a Simpsons character. <laughs> he's a Simpsons character. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. fucking perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, yeah that, that's what's coming up with collateral cinema. We have a lot of a lot more interesting movies coming down the line. I think we might be doing the Fifth Element somewhere. Yeah, we are. Soon. That's yeah. one of my suggestions. And yeah. you know, I was gonna say. I mean, you say we, you know, we were gonna kind of challenge ourselves in the future. This movie, you know, was a suggestion of mine as well, and I'd never seen it before. I kind of wanted to challenge myself to. Yeah you know, suggest a movie that I'd never seen. And I was pleasantly surprised. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, it, it's And like I said, I'm jealous of you, man. The first time watching this movie is always a fucking trip. Always the yeah. best time. Watching it, 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 was, time. it was a trip the first time I watched it. Yeah. Like, so I'm, I'm super excited about the rest of Collateral Cinema Season 3. And guys, Collateral Gaming Season 2, we just released our first episode, our season premiere on Uncharted. Go check that out on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also look forward to... Uh, our next episode is going to be our Halloween special and an indie movie episode, or sorry, indie game review, uh, and that's going to be PT. Ooh, that's going to be fun. I think I'm going to be on that episode yep. because I actually, I never played PT, but I got into watching a lot of playthroughs of it, and it is a very fascinating game. You can't play it anymore, so that's, I mean... That's unfortunate. Supposedly, you can like buy PS2s that are like a thousand bucks with it preloaded on it or something PS2s? like that. Well, I mean, PS2s? PS4s? PS4s, I should say, or PS3s. It, it deleted itself off of my PS4, and I'm so disappointed because I Aww. can't re-download it. I was going to keep it on there forever, and somehow it deleted itself, but... That's bullshit. Yeah, maybe... I don't know. But yeah, I'm yeah. super excited about that. We're not going to worry too much about not spoiling anything like we normally do in our indie game reviews because the game isn't out anymore, so... Yeah. But like, you know... Even if you haven't played it, if you've watched a few playthroughs, I mean, you, you've kind of seen what this game is. So I think even though we can't play it again to, <laughs> you know, to talk about it, yeah. it's still going to be a lot of fun to talk about. And then our next numbered episode on uh, Collateral Gaming is going to be Red Dead Redemption 2. So stay tuned for that in November. November. Well, guys, uh, you can find Collateral Cinema on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on uh, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, uh, Podbean, iHeartRadio, iHeartRadio, and that is and many other podcasts, apps, and everything. And that is thanks to Chill Lover Radio. Thanks you, to Chill thank Lover Radio. Yeah, you can download their app off of the Google Play Store and in the Apple Store as well. Yeah, yeah, Chill Lover yeah. Radio has been a lot of to work with. Um, so yeah, find Collateral Cinema wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, come and check out our Patreon. Yes, check out our Patreon. Guys, I worked really hard on uploading all of our commentaries. Yeah, yeah. Ash, Ash put his time in working on this stuff, so please stop by, join one of our tiers. It starts at $1, like... From now on, $1 will get you a shout-out on the ep- on an episode, near the end of the episode. I'm also so. trying. I'm also planning on converting all our podcast episodes into video episodes yeah, eventually. Yeah. And I'm doing the same with Collateral Gaming. I'm, I'm slowly getting myself caught up with that and working on the Patreon to have more Patreon content there as well. So. Yeah, yeah, we may we need to put some polls up or something like that to kind of get people coming in. Maybe we even need to have a poll even just on Twitter where somebody just, you know, 
maybe we'll go ahead and just add an extra episode and have Twitter decide what movie we watch. That would be really cool. That would be cool. That would be cool, right? Guys, leave us your feedback. Um, yeah. Leave us reviews uh, unless they're negative. No, I'm just kidding. No, seriously, <laughs> leave leave your, your feedback. We, we definitely want to hear it. Yeah, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't like negative reviews, but I mean, obviously, we like to learn from our mistakes too. So yeah, yeah, be honest. Give us your feedback. If there's something that you want to like DM us or email us, feel free to. Yeah. Our uh, social media channels are open. We're on you know Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, yeah, I think that's mostly all that we're on right now. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I, I actually, yeah, we do have Tumblr and WordPress. Tumblr. Yeah, I, I think we're on those as well. But yeah, uh, yeah, and then uh, Collateral Gaming is on all of those avenues as well so you can message us there and, and interact with us there and we all have our own personal social media accounts i mean you can find that i'm ashley chancellor that's robert ortegon and bo maddox dakota oh, yeah. chancellor is usually on here as well so you can search us all up on social media um we're oh, yeah. definitely open to interacting with the fans personally i actually pretty much accept any friend request because I, I naturally assume that it may be someone who's reaching out to me because of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, more than likely I'll add you unless you look like you're a Russian bot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's lots of those on Facebook. I, I, I do try to be a little, I try, I try to scrutinize a little bit. I'll at least glance at the account yeah. to see if it looks like it's a bot, but yeah, more than likely I'll add you. So, yeah. and you feel free to message me as well. I don't know about these guys, but oh yeah, feel free, feel free to contact us. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, anyways, guys, I'm Ashley Chancellor. I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Robert Ortegon. And I'm Dakota Chancellor. I'm Dakota Chancellor. I'm, I'm Dakota. a little, I'm a little buddy. <laughs> 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 this is Collateral Cinema, everybody. We are out. Out. Five thousand, like Andre. That's right. Three thousand. Sorry. Collateral Cinema is an L Company production. All music and movie clips are owned by the respective creators and are used for educational purposes only. Please don't sue us. We're poor.